Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. There was a little girl who was watching her mother uh, cooking uh, a roast. And she noticed her mum, when she was preparing the roast, cut the tip off the roast. And so she asked her mum, Mum, why did you do that? Why did you cut the tip off the roast? And the mother said, well, you know, what? it actually makes the roast better because all the juices inside the roast will seep out and it'll make it nice and succulent and really good. And, but anyway, that's what my, my mother taught me to do. So the little girl ran off to find her grandmother and asked her grandmother, why do you cut the tip off the end of the roast? And the grandmother responded, well... Because that way, all the juices that are outside of the roast can get into the roast and make it taste really nice. And by the way, that's what my mother taught me. Oh, the little girl's a bit confused, but then she runs off to find her great-grandmother and says, why do you cut the tip off the roast? And the great-grandmother said, well, because this pot that I have is too small and the only way I can get the roast in is by cutting the tip off. It's funny that over time, uh, things that we do tend to kind of get just kind of made different. (laughs) They they get either uh, misrepresented or or forgotten the real reason why we actually do what we do. Anyone experience that? Home, family, traditions? You know, they either get embellished or completely changed. Anyone play Chinese Whispers? Where you get in a big circle and you whisper to the person next to you something and by the time it goes all the way around, what comes out? Something completely different? Well, this morning I'm going to actually uh, talk to you about communion and um, what does it actually mean? Because so much has happened over the centuries towards some of the things that we do as a church that I think in some cases we may have actually lost the real purpose of what it's about. Why do we do what we do? What was it that made it start to begin with? It's kind of like the roast, you know, over, over generations, the roast become this whole cutting the tip off the roast becomes this whole culinary experience when really all it was <laughs> was grandmother couldn't actually fit the thing in, you know. Um, but communion is a very funny thing because when we talk about communion, there are so many questions that come up. And that's gone over the, and some of you know these questions, you've faced them over the years. Like, should everyone partake in communion or just members only? Who's been in churches like that, that have had those questions being raised? Other questions, real wine or grape juice? Now that's an issue. Huh? I've got some smiling faces at the back, we wish it was real wine. You know, <laughs> well, that's an issue in some churches. Okay, is it real wine or grape juice? Other things, is it one cup uh, for all or many cups? You know, I, I went to a Catholic school, I shared that, uh, was it last week? Um, you know, going to a Catholic church and you go to service, you get this one big cup that everyone drank from, and that was gross. You know, I used to think as a kid, oh, I hope I'm not going to stand behind so-and-so because I don't want to drink the cup after he's drunk it, you know. Um, and so there's all these questions that come up. Is it one cup uh, for all or, or many? Uh, other questions. 
Uh, and this is something like, for example, the Catholic Church deals with. Is it really the body and blood of Christ or is it just a representation? Now, these are big theological debates we've had over the centuries regarding uh, the issue of communion. It all stems from this one event. Over the 2,000 years, this one event, when Jesus sat down with his apostles and shared the Passover meal, and he said this, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. It was just one cup, by the way. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Do you think the way we do communion today is the same way the early church did it? Who wants to help me out with this one? I got a lot of heads that shook and said no. Francis? I was wondering if it's not the same method. It's not the same method, but? Spirit is the same. The spirit is the same. Yeah, I can agree with that. That's cool. So not the same, but the spirit is the same. Any other thoughts? It was a full meal, proper meal. Yeah. I feel like I'm only getting like a little bit of bread. I want the full thing. But it's true, it was a full meal. So there were some differences. So what changed over the years? How did we get it to this point? We got busier. We got busier. We ritualized it. Oh, that's a great word. We ritualized it. Hmm. That's a good point. Um, Before we can talk about why communion is what it is, I think we need to bring into perspective who is Jesus and what he'd done. Okay? This is really important because before you can start talking about, well, how should communion be, we really need to understand first and foremost, who is Jesus and what did he come to do? So, what was the big thing Jesus did? What did he come to do? Oh, if you don't know this, you shouldn't be in church. <laughs> I'm kidding. Come on, who knows? What, what did he come here for? He came, to save us. he came to save us, yes. What else? How did he do that? Dying on a cross. Why did he have to die on a cross? For our sins, but, but why did he have to do that? Fallen short, yet? What, what, what were people living by at the time? What covenant? The Mosaic Covenant. So what did Jesus do? He fulfilled the law. Hebrews. The first covenant had been faultless. There wouldn't have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Jesus came. He fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant, which is the law. And this is touchy. Because I know people who are even listening to this podcast are going to have a major issue with what I'm about to say. And I know some of you will have an issue with what I'm about to say. But you know what? The Mosaic law is fulfilled. What does that mean? 
Thank you. One word, done. It's done. If you go on to read, it says, when God speaks of a new covenant, the new covenant is found where? Who's the new covenant? Why? He is now the embodiment. Yes, in a way, he is now the embodiment of the new covenant. So it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon actually just not exist at all. So, here's the challenge with that kind of a a thought. Do we still follow the law? Who's got the courage to answer that one? What about the Ten Commandments? (laughs) Well, Jesus actually responds to that because there is a problem and the people are starting to pick it up. His followers begin to pick it up. They say, Jesus, if you're going to be the new covenant, if you're the one that's going to come and do all these changes, what are the most important laws that we need to keep following? What does Jesus say? And then love your neighbour. And what does that do? By those two commandments, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. What do those two commandments embody? Everything. Right? Everything. Everything. So by loving Jesus and following Jesus, you're basically embodying the whole law. So, wow, Jesus made a lot of changes. But here's the thing. I think we get caught up with the final act of what Jesus did, that is his death and resurrection, we forget about the changes he made in his life. I think it was last week when I talked to you about how important that life was, that we tend to focus on the birth and the death and resurrection, but in the middle there, there's a lot that he had done. For one thing, how many tribes of Israel? How many apostles? You think that's coincidence? I don't know if you'll be able to answer this one, but how many elders of Israel were appointed by Moses? If you don't know it, answer this question. 70. 70. Was that by coincidence? There were 70 elders appointed by Moses in Exodus chapter 24, and then Jesus then sends out 70 disciples. Coincidence. Amen to that. Here are some things that I need to share with you. Egypt. The Israelites were running to Egypt because they were running away from a famine. Jesus, where did he go when he was a baby? What for? Well, he was running away from persecution, from, from, from death, yeah. And then he ended up coming back out of exile from Egypt. What happened with the Israelites? Same thing, they came back out of Egypt. The Jordan, where was Jesus baptised? In the Jordan River. Symbolic of Israel crossing the Jordan River, coming into the Promised Land. How long was Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness? How long was the Israelites in the wilderness? So we're seeing some connections here. Are you with me? You see how important all this is? Okay, keep going. The temple... Okay, what does Jesus, who does Jesus equate, what does he equate himself to? What does he say when he says, 
knock this temple down in three days, I'll rebuild it. What was he talking about? His body. So he's equating his body to the temple. I, I have issues with people who are adamant that we need to build another temple in Jerusalem. Why? What was the purpose of the temple? Sorry? Well, yeah, for the presence of God on earth. What else? The sacrifices, right? What did Jesus do? That was a place that he was sacrificed, wasn't he? And now what has he sent to us? His Holy Spirit, which is? Presence of God. So why do we need another temple for? Can someone help me with that? You know, part, of the, part of the issue is that they read, we read Revelation where, oh, we need to build another temple there. But hang on a second. If Jesus is being metaphorical, metaphorical about his body being the temple, don't you think in a book that is completely metaphorical in Revelation that the temple is metaphorical for who Jesus is? His establishment on earth. There is a strong correlation. And if you read the language of Jesus, he correlates himself to the temple. He is the temple. And through his Holy Spirit, what do we become? We house the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We house his spirit. We house his spirit. His death. We talked about that, the sacrifice, right? How important was the sacrifice for the Jew? It was a means of connecting with God, bridging the gap between the sinful person and a holy God. That sacrifice brought us back together. That's what Jesus did. And so I think we're all clear on that one. And then Alistair said it perfectly during, during our time of communion, the Passover. Isn't it coincidence that Jesus chose to have the Last Supper on what is the greatest feast of what? What, we, what were they doing at Passover? Celebrating what? Coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, coming into freedom in the promised land, saving themselves, being saved from certain death as the angel of death went through Egypt and killed all the firstborn, from, from bondage. Whoa, Jesus chose to have the Last Supper and die over that period of time. What is he doing? What has he done? Yeah, he's given us the freedom uh, uh, from the power of, of, of sin and death. He's shown us that, that he is the Lamb of God, absolutely. Freedom from the law. Wouldn't you call this a new Passover? Just like Alistair said, he changed the script in the middle of Passover. And for those of you who might know a bit of Jewish history, and anyone had done a Seder before, have had a Passover, we should do one here at church sometime because it, it's just rich and full of symbolism, and I love it. But if you follow that, there's a, there's a script you follow. It's, it's laid out. You, you follow the script. He changed it. He changed it. Now you're celebrating... The great things Moses and the Israelites did in Egypt. 
And how significant was that for, for the Jews? Anyone know they're Jewish? How significant was what happened in Israel and how God saved them? How significant was that? Anyone? It was huge, wasn't it? It was their, that was their identity. You know the Anzacs? Guys, that, that, that identifies us, doesn't it? We're proud of what they have done and what they continue to do, don't we? Or maybe our younger generations don't understand it as much now. And that's the truth of it. But for those of us who know, Gallipoli sits in our hearts and in our minds and we, we honour what they have done. But this is even greater than that. For the Jews, their whole... You can read the Psalms. How many times do they go back to the redemption of being taken out of bondage, out of slavery? You read the Old Testament, that's full of this imagery of being saved. They, don't, they can't let go of it. Because why? Because it was so significant. So much a part of who they are. So much their identity. Even today, you watch movies still. I I watched the Ten Commandments the other day. And and it's it's, it's from the 50s, but man, it's still touching. You re-watch The Prince of Egypt. I mean, even in our day, we still feel there is something so strong in how God worked in that time. Well, you know what? Jesus has just surpassed that. He's taken it a notch higher. So for the Jews, the act of salvation through Israel from bondage, uh, through all that God had done in that period, if that's big for them, how much bigger is the act of what Jesus did on the cross for us? How important do you think Passover is to the average Jew? Anyone know? Yeah. Is it Hanukkah? Yosha. Yom Kippur, yep. And that's when the, uh, the Arabs decided to, to fight the war against them because they knew everybody was going to be taking holidays. Um, yeah. It, it is major, okay? Oh, we, we, we have Christmas and Easter, which, which are big for us, uh, but how many people choose to go on holidays at Easter time? Yeah. I want to challenge you on that. That's great, because you want to take a break, but hang on, it's not about your break. Uh, I don't want to be hard on you guys, so please bear with me. But we do, because culture tells us let's take a break, and we need the break. But it's not because we need a break. It's to remember what Christ has done. And that's bigger than anything, who we are, what we do. It's our identity. It's, what, it's everything. The Jews didn't go on holidays at Passover. They went and celebrated. They went and celebrated what God had done. All together, in Jesus' time, they went to Jerusalem. And they all packed up in there. And they all celebrated what God had done for them. How important is this? How important is this? Oh, by the way, just on a side note, what, what, what year was the temple destroyed? Does anyone know? 70 AD? Does that 70 kind of ring a bell again? Huh? Coincidence? The Sanhedrin? Someone said it? Yes, Alistair. The Sanhedrin? 
Everyone know what the Sanhedrin was? It was the tribunal, the Israeli, the Jewish tribunal. Jesus was brought to the Sanhedrin. They are 70 men. Just things to throw out there again. Coincidences, some might say. <laughs> We're going to take a look at a few passages in 1 Corinthians because I want to nail down what communion should mean for us. I've given you a bit of a background and, and you need to understand the importance of what this event means for who we are as Christians. Because sometimes, sometimes it's true, we take it kind of lightly. We start arguing the finer points. Uh, should we have communion once a month, every week? Real bread, not so real bread, wine, juice. You know, we start arguing and fighting over these finer points and we forget that this is pretty much the cornerstone of our identity as Christians. And the Jews took their identity very, very seriously. And so how seriously do we take our identity in Christ? Jesus came and he changed the script to Passover. So in a sense, communion for us is our new Passover. Except, unlike what the word or the term means, Passover, that meant that the, the Spirit of the Lord, the angel, passed over the houses. Well, no, not so for us. He's going to pass within us. He wants to change our lives. Through what He has done, He wants to see us with His Spirit living in Him. So heading off to 1 Corinthians. Um, if you want to head over to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Now, as Alistair was saying before, they didn't just do this back in the early church. They had feasts, big feasts. And they would get together and they would, uh, you know, come together and hear a word or someone would share. They would sing hymns. I'd love to know what the hymns sounded like back in those days. But they would sing, you know, hymns, most probably psalms that they would have learnt, uh, especially amongst the Jewish population. Um, so they would have done that. They would have had a get together and everybody would have brought their bread and their food and the, and, and, and the fruits and all that. And they would have sat down and had a big meal together. And as they had the meal together, they would have broken bread given thanks, and remembered who Jesus is as a community. Now, unfortunately, the Corinthians took this a little bit too far. Some people were getting drunk, so they actually did use real wine back then, um, but these people were overindulging in it. Uh, other people were left out, so people would bring food, and they would say, this is just for our group, you're not part of our group. Some of the poor people weren't partaking in the meal because they couldn't bring anything and so Paul's a bit aghast about well you guys have lost the whole point the whole meaning of what communion's all about of what breaking bread together really means and so he really launches into them and he starts in verse 23 um, I'm not I didn't put it up there because it was a bit too long but I'll read it through it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in the, uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, uh, without discerning the body of Christ and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. That's some heavy words from Paul to this church in Corinth. There are some heavy words, which, by the way, this predates the Gospels. So this is the first account that we actually have of a communion, of a gathering of believers wanting to eat and drink in remembrance of the Lord, following the commandment that was laid out by Jesus himself. So what does he mean by all of that? Well, I've broken it down, and we'll start with the first one. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. First of all, it's a remembrance. It it really is a remembrance. Just like the Passover feast, the Passover feast is a remembrance. Remember what the Lord did for you in Egypt. Remember what Jesus did for you on Calgary. Remember what he did on the cross for you. It is a remembrance. And it's something we pass down generation to generation. This is one of those things we don't change. This is one of those things that is eternal. That who we are as Christians, we never, ever let go of. You with me? He makes it really clear. Hey, I've received this from the Lord. I'm passing it on to you. And you know what? We need to pass it on to our children and our children's children. We need to never, ever forget what Jesus has done for us. Then he goes on to saying, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back. We look back. Now, this is difficult for us today because we're not Jews and our Jewish culture is so very far removed from our Western culture. Uh, I'm Italian and I can understand a portion of, of some of that. The Mediterranean culture is very similar in a sense. But when they remember something, they don't just light a candle and say, hey, we remember that. They, they almost live it. 
They, 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 they are they're almost... It's, it's kind of difficult to explain. But if you've done the Passover Seder, you can almost feel they have the taste of what it feels, the bitterness of being in captivity. You know, you, you, you taste it, you see it, you feel it, you smell it. They lived it. They relived the moment of what it meant to be passing, going through the Passover. So when we're called to proclaim the Lord's death, to remember the Lord's death, it's not just, hey, I remember it now and that's it. It's almost experiential in a sense. Do you really remember what it means? Do you really know what it feels like? No, I don't. Well, it's time to just dwell on what he has really done for you. It's time to just dwell on what it means for what he did for you. He's God. And they were spitting on him. He could have called down 10,000 angels with submachine guns in a moment and blow them away. And he chose not to. And you know what? A lot of us here could never do that. Because we have to prove a point. He proved it by being submissive and dying on the cross. Don't just remember it. And then he goes on, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The remembrance is one thing. The other thing that's so important about what we do here is, hey, you've got to remember who you are. Who are you? Who are you? Do you think it will matter in heaven whether you're a Kiwi or an Aussie? Do you think that really will matter? <laughs> oh, I'm getting some people going, yeah, of course it will. <laughs> oh, Kiwis, I don't know. <laughs> hey, your, your son went to the Holy Land. You better be careful. <laughs> you know, in heaven... Whether you're an Aussie or a Kiwi, Italian, Jew, it won't matter. Now, in some sense, it has to matter here on earth because we live by the laws of the land. But as we gather in this room, guess what? It doesn't matter. Our identity is in who? It's only in Jesus. Amen. Our identity here. I don't care how many degrees you got. I, I don't care how much money you have or how much hair on your, on your head, or maybe that I do care a little bit about, but <laughs> I, I don't care how well-dressed you are or how not well-dressed you are or how successful you are and how not successful you are. How tall, skinny, fat, short, it doesn't matter. Your identity, everyone's identity here in this room can only be found in Jesus. Full stop. We are all on the same plane. And when you come before this, when you come to communion, Paul is saying, just remember your place. Who are you? 
Who are you? Because you know what? We spend a lot of time cultivating something we're not. We spend a whole lot of time hiding from the real us. God wants you to be real with him. Examine yourself. And this is an opportunity. Come communion time. You're remembering who Jesus is. You're, you're celebrating the, the grace and the love found in him. But he wants you to look inside and say, hey, what's in there? What, what do you need to be looking at? Because God doesn't just settle with you. He loves us as we are in the place that we're in, but he wants to see you grow. He wants to see you rise up. He wants to see you accomplish his will for you in your life. And part of that might need a bit of work. Part of that might be to look inside and say, do I have to? Yeah, you have to. It's not anything for me to be calling out on, even though I do sometimes. It's not anything that the person next to you needs to call out on. This is between you and God. And that's the challenge we have when we're confronted with this. It's not just a remembrance. It's personal. Where am I at? I've got to be reminded of who I am in my relationship with God. Because this, this is what he's done for me. This is what he's done for me. And almost as the, one of the, was probably the most important thing, I don't know if it's the most important, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is even before Paul gets into this, he says this to the people, he says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are what? One body. How powerful is that? Huh? Last week I, I told you this a small group of Christians who were insignificant. Tacitus makes this incredible denunciations of Christians in his time. He was a, a Latin writer. And he just said, these Christians are weird. They're not going to last. They're like any other rabid group that comes out of nowhere. And yet Christianity has lasted a lot longer than the Roman Empire. And this small group of people had that much of an impact. The problem we have today is we've got 2 billion people who say they're Christian. And if that were the case... Uh, why is the world in the place that it's in right now? Really? Two billion of us say we we believe in Jesus? And and so, I, I I don't get it. I don't get it. If God could be so powerful with so few people, what are we doing wrong? What's going on here? Who here wants to see revival happen? Well, guess what? Let me give you a bit of a history lesson here. Revival never, ever accidentally happened. In all of history, revival never, ever happened accidentally. It happened because a faithful group of people got on their knees, 
purposely sought God, changed their lives, gave up all things that distracted them from who God is, uh, from who God is, from who the world is, and purposely sought out God to change their environment they were in. At every revival, you can see that happening from a faithful, small group of people. All of a sudden, something happened. That through their faithfulness in seeking out their God, in identifying who Jesus is in their lives, their communities were changed. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here. I don't have, or no, I can't put it, or maybe I will. Uh, you know, I, I have a heart for everywhere else in the world. I, I, I read about North Korea and I just, oh, it gets me upset. But then I read about India. I watched a story this week that just had me, oh, uh, it was a story about who killed Scarlett. There was a girl who was killed in Goa, India. And just everything behind that and what's going on there just oh, made me angry, a righteous anger. And I've got, but you know what? It doesn't, it's not me. And, and then I've got people knocking on my door here and saying, hey, Rob, we need to deal with the child slavery in, in Southeast Asia, which is awful at the moment, and it is. And, and I, yeah, I agree with you. I'm right behind, but I'm called to hear. This is my calling. And if, if I can't change the world around me, how can I go out into the world and start changing that? It was like a friend of mine once who aspired to be a musician. This was back in high school. And he wanted to be a rock star. And he got out his guitar. And I remember there was a group of us in his garage. And he said, I've got a few songs I want to play for you. And he started playing them. And, and, and he, he choked. He couldn't do it. And I said, dude, you want to be a rock star? You can't even play in a garage. And that was awful kids and all that kind of stuff. But part of it is for me as well as a Christian. If I'm not able to impact my community, the, the place where God's put me, how in the world am I ever going to go overseas and deal with some serious issues out there? Which, by the way, they're just equally as serious here. It's just different forms of it. Now, I'm not talking about missionaries, by the way. Their calling is their calling. My calling is here. And I know some of you are called to go out into that world, and our calling is also to support them. So please don't hear me about saying no missionaries. But what I am challenging you on is, if God has called you here, what kind of impact are we having here? And that doesn't mean going out and arguing for uh, political uh, agendas and rights. Because you know what? That's not what the early church did. The early church took this seriously, and they lived it. And that was enough to change the world around them. That was enough. And that's the challenge for us this morning. There's one bread, one cup, one body. And when we come before it, we are called to be challenged in our walk with the Lord to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, to be also challenged by where we stand with him and where we are with him, and to be renewed in the mission that he has laid out before us.
Because this is not supposed to bring us down. This is supposed to lift us up. It's like a car wash. Let go of the world. Reconnect with the Lord who loved you so much that he, he went to his death for you. Oh, there's so much power in that I can't even begin to tell you. If that doesn't stir your heart, I've I, I got nothing else. I can do handstands, but that won't stir your heart. It'll just make you laugh. Now ask the worship team to come up. And as they get set up, I just want to spend a moment. I, I know we had a moment with the cup and, and we had a moment in hearing what was going on there. But take a moment now to review inside of you. Think about Jesus and what he has done for you and where he is tugging your heart. Because I don't care how old or how young you are, he's still calling and he'll call you right up to the day, even after you're dead. The day you die, he's still calling you. I was with a friend of mine, an old pastor friend of mine, my mentor. He was dying and he was still ministering to me. God doesn't stop. He doesn't want to stop working through you. He wants to continually work through you. Find what's in your heart that needs to be cleansed. Let's just take a moment and then our worship team will lead us in the last song.